0: find your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to continue our series as we've been walking through this book. Ephesians chapter 6 is the grand conclusion. So you find your way there, and as you do, let me ask you, what animal is regarded as the number one human predator in the United States? Anybody know? What do you think? Fire ants? No. Def- nope. It's not it. Close. No. You know what it is? Mountain lion. Okay? A cougar. Okay? Now, the chances of you actually, you know, facing off with a mountain lion, they're pretty rare. But some are coming, and I know that some of you will be doing some traveling and visiting parks, et cetera. Uh, in fact, I heard after first service you don't have to go very far to maybe encounter one of these. I want you to know how you can fend off or what you should do if you should encounter a mountain lion because really i'd like you to continue to be a part of fellowship bible church okay so i want to prepare you uh you might want to take some notes just in case all right so first thing you want to do and this you've got to be kidding but you need to stay calm right you want to be calm even though everything about you is like ah go into panic mode start shrieking whatever you do never turn your back okay because mountain lions, they always go for the neck and the head. And you turn your back, guess what? You're done, right? That, that is a quick way to end it all. So you remain calm. Um, you want to make yourself as big and as loud as possible, okay? You lift your hands up, you got a backpack, maybe you got a walking stick, whatever it is, and you want to be loud, not shrieking but loud, okay? You want to appear intimidating. If you don't think you're very intimidating, try to at least appear intimidating, right? Um, you try to give the cougar a way of escape, okay? Uh, if you see a cougar like feeding or with its young, do not like, oh, these cute little kittens, I'm going to pet them. Bad idea, okay? It's, it's going to be over. They're, you're going to bring out the, ro- the worst out of the mountain lion. You never, ever want to run away, okay? And you never want to turn your back. So I know that some of you are very fast runners. In fact, I saw some of you at the 5K Mission Waco race yesterday. And, and you're very fast, right? But do you think you're faster than a mountain lion? So think about how fast you run, even on your best day. I looked this up this morning. Do you know what the average, human averages of how fast they can run? It's actually kind of pathetic. It's six miles an hour. Ugh, okay? We could do better than that. And there's some that can, but six miles an hour. Do you know how fast a mountain lion can run? 40 to 50 miles an hour, okay? You do the math, okay? Even on your best day, you, you can't escape a mountain lion if they charge you. And if you start running, like, I think I can outrun the mountain lion, which is a terrible idea, uh, that reminds them of their favorite prey, deer. Because when deer see mountain lions, what do they do? and they start running away, and guess what the mountain lion attacks? Because their neck is exposed, game over. I'm telling you this because this is what you need to do. Now, you you, you slowly back away, you're making yourself large, uh, you could throw things at it so that they're like, oh, I'm not sure I want to mess with this gal or guy, right? But if they should charge you, you need to fight for your life, and I, I assure you, you, your life is at stake at this point. And there are actually plenty of people that have actually fended off a mountain lion. You never want to crouch down, don't want to expose your back or your neck, but use whatever you got. Sticks, rock, knife, frankly, at this point, uh, having a gun and knowing how to use it would be a great idea, right? But you want to do whatever it takes. Someone's going to win that battle, okay? And so uh, I tell you this because I want you to be prepared. Now, what do you think the odds are that you're going to be attacked by a mountain lion. You know what they are? One in a billion. Whew. Okay, because I saw you guys taking notes, okay, and you're like, oh, what, what, okay, what am I supposed to do? Are you serious? Okay, take it. Do you know, though, there is another adversary, and the odds of you being attacked by this adversary, this predator, a lot higher. In fact, the odds, 100%. And the adversary I'm speaking of is the devil. Satan himself. And when you come to Ephesians chapter 6, this grand conclusion, after everything that has been written, you find out how God has revealed this war that we are in. And in it, he talks about Satan's strategy and the Savior's resources. I want you to know to the degree that you understand and apply this text is the degree that you're going to live in the victory and the triumph of Christ. If you are unfamiliar, you don't pay attention, or you don't think like this really is all that important, I want you to know there are significant consequences to your life. And so I want you to know all that we have. And if you think about this world in which we live, it is a fallen world. And frankly, we have this flesh that just yearns after sin. What is up with that? Why, why, do, we, why do we yearn after it? And, and these temptations seem so like, oh, that's really interesting. I think I'd like to learn more. And then furthermore, we got this formidable foe. How is it that we can actually stand strong? How can we experience victory in Christ when there is just so much against us, even within us? Friends, this passage, and we're going to spend several weeks going through it, this is how it's done. How does our relationship with Christ make all the difference in the spiritual war that we face? The first thing I want you to see in verse 10, chapter 6, is that we need to be strong in the Lord. Take a look. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong. This is like a spiritual battle cry. It is a call to arms. So for every person out there that's kind of just living in complacency and lethargy and just like barely functioning and awake it's like do, 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 stand firm in the lord it's this strong in christ it is a call that you're in a war and you need to wake up and you need to be ready you need to be strong in the lord now we're going to be talking about the adversary and there are times we're going to we're going to talk about talking some pretty difficult stuff It's going to be very quiet here at some points. But let me remind you where the victory is found. It is found in Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he enters into humanity. He lives a perfect life, he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. And he rose again on the third day and he defeated sin, hell, and Satan. He is where the victory is. But I want you to know that even though the victory is secure, there is a war that's taking place in this life. And what we're going to talk about in these next few weeks is how to experience that victory. But it's all found in Jesus. Jesus isn't a nice thought, familiar with him, glad he's done some things for me. You need to know him personally especially when you face the challenges. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Think of it. Jesus, when he walked this earth, he was tempted in everything. Everything that you and I are tempted with, guess what? Jesus has also been tempted, and yet he never sinned. That means that we can find strength in one who knows victory and provides victory. And so he says, be strong in the Lord. And you're like, well, how do you become strong in the Lord? I'll just tell you real simply. You need to invest in your relationship with him, okay? You're eternally secure, right? But you need to invest in your relationship with God. That means you need to talk with him. Read the Bible. Learn about him. Learn of his truth. He's given it to you. Confess your sin not just on a Sunday morning but anytime you've sinned you should take that to God worship serve so you you invest in your relationship you need to know your identity in Christ if you're going to be strong in the Lord that you're not defined by your past your mistakes you're not defined by your successes and your achievements you're defined by Jesus Christ and him resurrected from the dead Your identity is eternally wrapped up in him. And third, if you want to be strong in the Lord, you've got to involve yourself with his people. You know, we know that, like, for physical health, there are just certain things that you do, right? You should eat healthy, you should work, exercise, get some rest, and sleep. I mean, we know that. Some of us are better than others in some of these categories, but we know that that's what a healthy life would look like, right? Right? I want you to know that just like there are physical practices that we have, there are spiritual practices, and I just gave them to you. You want to be strong in the Lord. You are going to find yourself, though, tested, and we need to learn to go to God rather than going it alone or just giving in because there is a war going on, and God wants us strong in him. And so you're in the war. Whether you seem to realize it or not, but hopefully after today's message, you're like, oh, I am definitely in the war, and I see the implications of it. But I want you to know I am, and I I sense this greatly. So one of the things that i found to be very helpful is to have a personal mission statement to remind me who I am and what I'm to do. When I'm facing unknowns, difficult situations, I'm like, or I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, I just remind myself of my personal mission statement, which is simply this, to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. Every word is important to me, to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life, L-I-F-E, right from our church mission statement, the life we have in Christ, loving God, investing others, following his word, engaging our world. That's what God calls me to do. In 10 seconds, I can pray through that and have a sense of orientation and walking in God's strength. But we need to stand firm in the Lord. Do you remember how Paul began this letter in Ephesians chapter one? There's this great prayer. And in that prayer, he says this, that he prayed that all of believers would know the surpassing greatness of his power, which is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. God wants us to know his power, not just about him, but to experience the power of his presence. This isn't a head knowledge, or some people call a heart knowledge. This is actual experiential knowledge. I know the power of his presence, that God can provide the strength. I've learned to rely on him. I'm stopped living it on my own, doing my own thing. I'm living now in God's strength. And so if you want to know, like, how does our relationship with Christ make all the difference in the spiritual war that we face First thing you need to know is you need to be strong in the Lord. But the second, you're going to find it here in verses 11 uh, through 13, uh, is that we need to be equipped for the fight. We need to be strong in the Lord, but we need to be equipped for the fight. And let me tell you, you're in a fight. So the first thing we need to know is we need to know how to prepare, and that's exactly what he tells us. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He says you're to put on the full armor of God and he's using imagery that would be immediately bring to mind Roman soldiers and all their armor and the weapons that they carried. And he's going to use this imagery and saying, just like a Roman soldier is prepared for the battle, so you and I as believers... We're living in the armor that God provides. This isn't like uh, like you put it on and off, okay? So, like if you ever played football, uh, you know that you put all your pads on, right? And you put the jersey on, and then you go out there and you are in a battle, right? And then you can show back up in your locker room, you are totally exhausted, and you take off your helmet and all the pads and the uniform, right? You take all that off, and then you go do your thing. That's not what he's talking about here. The resources that God provides, they're to be a way of life. The armor of God is the reality of knowing Christ and the resources that we have in him. And for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through this because this will make all the difference if we understand the realities of knowing Jesus and how to appropriate these resources, the difference Jesus makes in our life will make all the difference in this war that we face. But notice the armor. He says, put on the full armor of God. This isn't your armor. In fact, you can't fight these battles in your own strength. I don't care how smart you are, what kind of success that you might have had. This is a spiritual war. It's going to take spiritual armor, and it doesn't actually come from you. It's not how hard, or I'll just persevere, or I'll just kind of plow through this. Uh Uh-uh, that will not work. This cannot come from you. This must come from God. It's his armor. It's his resources. And it's really interesting, this armor that we'll be looking at in these next few weeks, it is the imagery that we find of the promised Messiah in the book of Isaiah, who has all of this same armor. And that's what it is. It's the armor, it's the resources that we have in the Messiah, Christ, that we appropriate to our life. It makes all the difference. And so when Paul is writing about putting on the full armor of God, do you remember when uh, Paul was writing this letter? Where is he? He's actually under house arrest, meaning he likely only had to look out the window, or perhaps there was a Roman soldier standing in front of him, and he just starts describing that armor. And he says, this is the imagery. These are the parallels for our life. So we need to know what we are to do. We are need to stand firm. Do you see that? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. And used in a military sense, this means to hold a critical position while under attack. So we need to know what we need to do. We need to put on the full armor of God. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But then we also need to know what we are facing It's not that we just, we understand that God provides the armor, but you need to have an understanding of what we are facing. Because notice what he said in verse 11. We are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Do you see that? We need to know who our enemy is. So when I ask you, who's your enemy? What comes to your mind? Do you think like, well, the unbelievers, well, they're the enemy. Or is it, ah, oh, it's media. Or it's the, it's the world system. I want you to know that the actual enemy is Satan himself. And all of those things, why he uses and, and oftentimes controls, and he, and he uses toward his wicked, evil ends. But our actual enemy is the devil. The word devil uh, comes from the... Greek word diabolos, it means like accuser or slander, and it tells us both of his character and his strategy, and notice this devil. He has schemes. Do you see that? Able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This word is the Greek word methodia. It's where we get our word method, for, method from, and it was used oftentimes of wild animals who were cunning, and by stealth, would just come upon their prey, their unsuspecting prey, and attack and devour them. These are the schemes. And so when it comes to the devil, just a little bit bit of background on here. First of all, you need to know that, well, it's just this big war between God and Satan, and they're on equal terms. Actually not. Scriptures are clear to show us that satan is actually a fallen archangel one of the chief angels and what happened was he his heart became so full of pride and that pride wanted him to have the position of god and so he leads a revolt and it seems to be about like a third of the angelic realm uh actually join him they're now called demons they're involved in the exact same deception they the the devil is not on equal par with God the Father or on equal par with God the Son. Actually, the if you want to know like equal par, what would be his peer would be like Michael the Archangel or Gabriel. And so there's this war that is going on. God is fully in control. He allows this evil. He, in fact, allows this fall. And if you think about it, like, wow. You see perfection in the garden, and then you see this fall going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you have sin and all the wreckage that takes place, you have Jesus coming, he's living, he dies on a cross, rises again, and then you see the establishment of the church, and then you come to the book of Revelation, and you see that indeed, Satan has an eternal end. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. But why? Why? Why would God allow all this fallenness and sin and wickedness and evil and Satan to have all this like roaming and creating all this havoc? It's because the fullness of God's character is put on display. Savior, salvation, grace, mercy, justice through this. And these things will be eternally celebrated. We see it in our, in our earthly experience. We read about it in the text but these will be the celebrations of heaven as the grand character of god is exalted and put fully on display but there are these schemes this deception that he brings about and when it comes to satan uh you know so often he's portrayed as like this guy running around in a little like red jumpsuit right and he's got little horns on his head and he's got a pitchfork and that's and, it, and it's very it's it's, it's oftentimes how Satan is portrayed. And Satan, I think, loves that he's portrayed that way. Because that's just like a cartoon figure, uh, figure right? You can't take that seriously, right? Uh, I want you to know that how Satan functions and works, it's kind of like the opposing football team. Do you know all of those guys, all those coaches, they're watching game film. That's what this looks like. And, and they're studying their opposition. They know all of their propensities. They know where their weaknesses are. They know that if, if they move even in a particular way, that they're likely going to be going in this direction. They study game film just so they can read their opponent. Why don't you know that Satan and all of his demonic realm, they're like studying our game film. They know your history. They know your weak spots and your patterns of sin. And frankly, they're very good at understanding this. This isn't their first go-around. They're a formidable foe. I remember years ago as a new believer, I came across a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a satire. It has these this guy named Screwtape. He's, he's kind of like this demonic devil who trains others, and is one of his trainees, his nephew named Wormwood. And in these 31 letters that he writes, and this is all just a satire, okay, This, this didn't actually happen, but it's actually pretty insightful, is that you begin to see, like, how this might play out. So, like, Lewis, in his introduction on this, he writes this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about demons, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both heirs with the same delight. And just to like, kind of give you like a brief excerpt, of, like, well, what does this even look like? I'll just read you just a brief couple sentences. Screw tape. he's writing to his demonic trainee, Wormwood, and he writes this. It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds, In reality, our best work is done in keeping things out. Isn't that the case? We oftentimes really actually know what to do and what is true. It's just that we we don't think about it, and we don't act upon it. The Scripture tells us about our struggle. There are the schemes of the devil. And notice what he says in verse 12. You want to know what we're up against Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Struggle, in, the, in secular Greek, this oftentimes referred to a wrestling match, although it could refer to a battle. But it tells us that this is personal. There's going to be a personal struggle. A fight is on. And our struggle, though, is not against flesh and blood. In fact, he says it's against the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, in the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. This is the unseen war that is taking place. It takes place at this very moment. We can't see it. At times we might be able to perceive it, but we know it exists because Scripture records it. And we see all the evidence for it. There are these rulers' powers. powers. Um, this isn't meant to be like a catalog where you can like, oh, okay, here are all the categories and I'm going to figure this all out and, and put, well, this demon is really more in this category. No, this is meant to show you that this is organized. It's complete. It's not meant for you to like kind of catalog them in all these different divisions. But we are to understand about this formidable, fo- formidable foe, he is at work in a variety of ways. It represents spiritual powers, human beings that promote paganism and the occult, various other ungodly and immoral movements, you know, like, like this whole LGBTQ plus radical agenda. I want you to know this is in complete opposition to God and his truth. And you're like, what? where's the source from? I want you to know it's not the people that are evil that are doing this. It's what God the devil is doing through them. It's like they're duped. They don't even understand. They're like ensnared by these things. And, and they're trapped in their sin, and it's, it's unwitting. And some of them are very sincere and giving themselves out with great devotion. It's just that they're blinded, and they're moving in an anti-God direction. And I want you to know, we see the wreckage everywhere. Kent Hughes, when he describes Satan, he says this, Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals, and he feeds on pain and anguish and filth. That's how he operates. No remorse, nothing redeemable, sheer, raw evil. And he's very good at what he does. And we see the proof of the devil's just great uh, depravity being displayed Everywhere. I mean, we see it uh, just on a daily basis, from violent crime, devastating wars, religious deception, moral deterioration, political corruption. I mean, just just think of it. Like, just even the issue of the unborn. Everyone would know, like, this is a baby, right? You just look. It's very evident. Where do humans come from? The only way they come is this way. And yet, well, it's a political issue. Is it? And yet, I want you to know there are millions of people that are that highly intelligent but are completely confused and baffled by this issue and just will subscribe to a position that is clearly in direct contradic- contradiction to the evidence before us. And we don't have to look very far. I mean, we look at our own marriages, families, neighborhoods, our churches. There's like wreckage Everywhere. What is going on? And this battle leads to all sorts of brokenness broken relationships, broken homes, divided churches, uh, addictions, bitterness, despair, depressions, uh, depressions, violence. It's everywhere. And I'm like, what is going on? Why, it's all the outworking of this war. It is the schemes of the devil, and it's creating a lot of destruction. And this Satan's schemes to attack the followers of Christ, I want you to know are are pretty broad and what i 'd like to give you are the what i 'm going to call the killer d 's that the devil uses to bring defeat to the children of god and these aren 't in any particular order, but you need to know what you 're up against when it talks about the schemes of the devil. likely, these are going to sound way too familiar. For some of you, this is going to be a huge eye-opener. You're like, oh my, I see that. And I will tell you, though, it seems that if, if you're just kind of complacent, you're just kind of floating along in life, you're not taking your spiritual life very seriously, you're certainly not strong in the Lord, you're just kind of floating. I want you to you, you can't lose your salvation. You, God gives eternal life, right? When does eternity end? It doesn't. He offers and gives eternal life. Eternal salvation but if you're pretty much just kind of neutralized, it seems as if Satan is just very happy for you to see kind of bumping along, just week after week, month after month, year after year. But if you are taking your faith seriously, if holiness means something to you, you will really actually have a desire to people that know Jesus. You want to see the disciples made around the nation. You've got a vision for God's glory for this world. It's like there's a target on your back. And let me just give you the killer D's that the devil uses to bring defeat to the children of God. First one, doubt. The devil's supreme desire is get people to doubt God, his goodness, his love, his mercy, that he is going to uphold justice. It's just to get you to a place where you're like, "Mm, I don't really know how loving my father is because look at my circumstances or these things that have happened. Let me give you another one, denial. If Satan can convince you that he doesn't exist or that he doesn't have an agenda? Let me just tell you this. He's got you by the hand. You don't even know it. He owns you. He's got you by the hand. Another is discouragement. Whether it's just our fear of criticism, uh, life isn't working out the way we want it, we've got this equation, and these parts don't make sense, and I'm, I'm upset, I'm discouraged, I lack personal fulfillment. I want you to know discouragement is just one of his great tools, a part of his scheme to lead to all sorts of defeat. And I care to th- say that I think almost every one of us, every one of us faces discouragement. I do. Like, you got to be kidding me. Are we really doing this? And is that, am I really seeing this clearly? And why is this happening? What's part of his schemes. Let me give you another. Discontentment. With all that God has provided, right? And we just had a prayer time where we're just thanking God for all of his blessings, right? And his goodness is running after me. We just sung it in worship, right? And yet part of Satan's scheme is, yeah, you know, God's done some nice things for you, but Jesus isn't enough. You need something more. He's got plenty of opportunities. And, And let me give you just one word if you're discontent. Bitterness. It's like a cancer to your soul. I'll give you a verse, 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, contentment in Christ. Let me give you a few others. Part of his strategy, these killer Ds, division, uh, diversion, excuse me, where you're distracted, like when Jesus gave that parable in Mark 4, 19, where he talks about the worries of this world and the desire for other things. Or another D, disregard of godly counsel. Or disinterest in the things of God, where you will give your attention and affections to anything else. I mean, he's so good at at creating all these diversions. I mean, think of it, just the entertainment. The entertainments for it is so alluring and, and oftentimes so well done. It may not be of any real earthly value or heavenly value, but it, it it owns you and you can't hardly break away. And disinterest is like, okay, you're a Christian and of all the things that you could do, like just spending time loving God, worshiping Him, reading His Word, praying, serving, uh, worshiping, well, guess what? It's like, ah, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like the bottom of your list. And I want you to that's part of the scheme. Get you engaged, get you to... Trust in your gifts. Trust in past successes. Receiving things from God, but n- losing the gratitude aspect, you know? Yeah, God was good, but uh, I'm really in it for myself at this point. Um, you know, there are people, and I'm sure you know them, that once had like a vibrant ministry, you know? And they were like serving God with great joy and delight, and then now it's ex- they're just kind of like off and Never land. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. The killer Ds have stepped in, and they've kind of just diffused whatever ministry that they had. Let me give you some more on these killer Ds. Deception. Deception is a a huge tool of Satan. In fact, it's his name, Diabolos. These include temptations to God's children for immorality, worldliness, pride, self-reliance, dishonesty, self-satisfaction. That's that's how he works. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life to deceive you, that you deserve this. You need this. You need to anesthetize the pain that is in your life. This will help. It'll at least get you through the night. That's all you need. You never think about the consequences. Deception is something he's, he's an expert at. And, I, and when it comes to deception, like there are people that I believe are genuine believers. They know Jesus. And yet, you're know, like, how in the world could they promote this? How is it that they could espouse these things and write these things when is this clearly in direct violation of the scriptures? Well, Paul even addresses that in Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-six, and he he says, writing to Timothy, that they may come to their senses, having escaped from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so we see that deception is a huge part of it. Let me give you another a few more. Destruction. This includes evil nationally and international policies, practices that deceive and destroy people's lives, like abortion, genocide, euthanasia. Who's behind all this? All this destruction, utter disregard for humanity, the dignity of life, people made in God's image. I'll tell you who's behind it. The very one we're reading about here in Ephesians chapter 6. Um. Let me give you another. Disunity. Satan loves to create divisions. And that's why we see Jesus praying for unity, like in John 17. His strategy? Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Split them up. You got a healthy church? Split it. You got a ministry that's going good? Split it. Bible study? Create division, tension. Over sometimes secondary issues. Have people forget that forgiveness is part of our repertoire and tools for relationship. And then you, you see disunity, uh, it creates all sorts of destruction afterward. Let me give you a few more. Doctrinal confusion, where you have Christians that no longer really understand the Bible. In fact, they don't really read it. And so they're confused on all sorts of issues from salvation to sanctification, authority of God's word, morality, heaven, hell, second coming, who God is. And most cr- supposed evangelical Christians are now confused on primary orthodox key issues. They just, they don't even know what's in the Bible. They go to churches that rarely even teach the scriptures. They reference a few Bible verses. And so they just kind of like, well, I think God is like this, or God means this to me. and like, I'll just go with that, even if it's in contradiction with the word. Where does that come from, this doctrinal confusion? It's one of the killer Ds of the devil. I'll give you a few more. And this duplicity, I think, is one of the greatest successes of Satan. See, throughout history, the history of the church, Satan has populated the church with religious unbelievers and believers living disobedient lives. And I, I think it's one of its greatest successes. I'll give you one more. Disobedience. To get you to disobey God's word. God says, love, you're going to choose the path of hate. God says, I want you to live in truth. You'll buy into falsehood. Everything that God promotes and says, this is the way to live, disobedience says, I think I'll do it my way. I think I got a better idea. And often it's going to be a combination of these, but friends, we're in a fight. We need to know how to be strong in the Lord, and we need to know how to be equipped for this fight that we're in. But finally, notice verse 13. We need to be ready to resist evil by relying fully on Christ. Take a look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So he's saying, I want you to live in the full armor of God. Take up, describe, it's a military term for preparation for battle. And this is what God is calling us to in this text. You're in a fight You need to be prepared. Take up the full armor of God. And you're like, well, how does one do that? Well, you read about it, okay? And we're going to study it deeply. You want to request help in prayer. And you want to then refocus your thoughts on God and his truth. You want to be able to stand firm, to be able to resist. And it portrays Christians in a battle, in a spiritual battle, battle, but they're doing it together. You see that word you there in verse 13? I'm going to guess you've always taken that singular, like, oh, that you, that, oh, me as an individual. But actually, it's plural. And it means all of us together. If you're going to be the Lone Ranger and I don't really need the church and the pandemic has told me that I can just kind of watch church, at ever, and uh, I don't really have to be involved in one, you are at risk. That is really how you're going to get picked off. And so he tells us that we are to stand firm together. Roman generals, what they would do is they would call their soldiers to stand firm. And the reason that the Roman army was so successful is that they had figured out that if a general could command his legions and to form one unified force, where they all were together, they never once capitulated, didn't run, didn't break ranks, that they would be pretty much... Uh, invincible when they were on the battlefield. And that's how they functioned. And that's, it's interesting, like most Roman soldiers, they didn't actually have armor on their back because it was considered uh, shameful to run. And so this is what it kind of looked like when they were all together. And so, like, if you turned your back, you probably were going to die. So you stayed put and you stood firm and you stood together. And that is the rally cry of this text to stand firm. A military term meaning to stand your ground. I'd like to ask, is there just anybody here that is willing to stand firm? Stand firm in our church, together. Standing firm in your family. We need some Christians that will stand firm in our schools, not capitulating, not melding into the woodwork. What about your job? Are you standing firm? This text tells us we're in a fight and that we are to stand firm. And I'll tell you that Satan, if Satan will come after Jesus with his temptations, remember that in Luke chapter 4? And it said that, you know, after Jesus passes all the tests by referring to the word of God and not giving in, it says that the devil left him for a more opportune time. If Satan's going to come after Jesus on his earthly life here, get, what, get ready. He's going to come after you. Alistair Begg said this, You will never know Jesus Christ as a reality until you know him as a necessity. Do you really need Jesus? Do you see your sin and how much you need a savior? The wages of sin is death and he died in your place. I see my need for a savior. Do you understand the spiritual struggle? You can't win it on your own. You need his strength. You see the reality, I need him. And you know those times where it seems like it's pretty heavy and like you're weighted down? Maybe even wake up at night and you're kind of in a cold sweat. I've had those experiences. Let me give you a prayer to pray. Martin Luther would pray this prayer. Jesus, uh, uh, watch Peter pray this prayer when Peter was sinking into the water. It's simply this, Lord, save me, help me, and he will. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You see, Christ will either deliver us from the danger and evil or through it. But our source of strength is Christ. Christ is our source of strength in the spiritual war that we face. So, can I tell you? Watch out for lions wherever they may be. You remember how Peter entered, uh, um, ended his first epistle? He said this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. He said this, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord. We want to thank you for this passage of scripture. You have given us clarity to this war and the great strength and the joy and the victory we have in Christ. For someone who is here today and they have never until this time realized just how significantly lost they are, would they pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin? Those killer Ds, they have destroyed my life. I need you. I'm asking for forgiveness and relationship with Christ. I believe in him. Lead me, Lord. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, Lord, we ask that we would stand strong in you, that we would see your power work, working even in our weaknesses. May we live in your joy and your victory, not in fear, but living by faith. We ask this for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.